What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I'm coming with you. No, you're not. I like you alive. I can look after myself. That's beside the point. I might not be coming back. Wait, where are you going anyway? To see Spectre again. Have fun with that. <laughs> Looks like Gold Larson here is going to try and kill my 007 buzz. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to be politely disagreed with. We'll see how polite it gets on this week's show, a possible split review of Bond 24. And we've got a special guest to help us out with this week's top five favorite Bond tropes. That and more ahead on Film Spot. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Harry's. For guys like you who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com and get $5 off your first purchase by entering the code FILMSPOTTING when you check out. We're also brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. This week, Mubi is collaborating with Los Angeles' AFI Fest, bringing you three films from that festival. A gorgeous highlight from last year is Two Doors Nicole. It's a slyly comic gem, Mubi says, from Quebec, with a languid summertime atmosphere. Meanwhile, directly from this year's festival, Mubi is showing two 2015 American indie shorts, Trevor Anderson's The Little Deputy and festival favorite Mike Ott's Lancaster CA. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, then you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, and you get that for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting, you can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. I've been trying to get out of doing this week's top five since it was proposed last week. And thanks to listeners and a guest who is the 007 of Bond experts, I think I'll mostly avoid embarrassing myself. We will see. That top five best Bond tropes is later in the show. First, though, with Spectre, Daniel Craig returns for his fourth go as James Bond. But does the role still fit him as well as that Tom Ford suit? This organization, do you know what it's called? Its name is Spectre. Look around you, James. Everything you believed in. A ruin. Why did you come? I came here to kill you. You came here to die. Well, it's all a matter of perspective. Josh, nobody will ever mistake us for 008 and 009. More Speak like, for yourself. More like just double zero. <laughs> we don't have a license to kill. I'm pretty sure we shouldn't even have a license to review the 24th official installment in the Bond series. Did you ever consider I may be deep, deep undercover? <laughs> I definitely never considered that. We don't wear destructible watches or drive sweet Aston Martins, but we do have one asset. 
we are keenly aware of our deficiencies, which is why we reached out to a guest bond expert critic, Chris Klemek. In his own mixed review of Spectre for NPR.org, Klemek offers up a number of insightful nuggets that reflect his Bond saga sagacity, including this one. Daniel Craig is the fourth actor to play James Bond a fourth time, and Mission 004 in each 007's run is historically where the films begin to go slack. 1965's Thunderball, 1979's Moonraker, and 2002's Die Another Day were all divisive fourth installments immediately followed by necessary course corrections. Chris adds, despite the moaning they inspired among diehards, they were also huge hits. Indeed, Thunderball stood for 47 years as the series' most successful entry until Skyfall beat it. To be sure... It wouldn't be hard to write off Spectre after Skyfall, the second Bond film in a row directed by Sam Mendes, as an uninspired retread of past Bond movies, perhaps, but more specifically of just about every action franchise we've seen over the past half decade or more. We inhabit, after all, a universe of Marvel, impossible missions, and mysterious cowl-wearing men. Josh, you appreciated Craig's previous three Bond pictures. Yes, all three, even the quantifiably lame Quantum of Solace. Does number four stay true? to Bond tradition and suddenly go slack. Note, this is actually a trick question because there's no way the word slack can be applied to anything featuring so much of Daniel Craig's taut torso. I liked Quantum of Solace. I'd forgotten about that. According to your website. (laughs) That's the problem with websites. Um, Uninspired? Is that the word I heard? That's that's it. That's dead on. Mm. I mean, this thing is... No one involved seems to be you can't tell these things. You can only guess by the vibe you're getting from the screen. That into it. I, I include Daniel Craig there right from the top. And he is probably, if I'm forced to pick, I've been thinking about this. I know we batted it around a little bit earlier. My favorite Bond, even surpassing Connery. I really like what he's brought to the role, but I think he's brought everything he's going to bring by now. And I think he knows that. Yeah, I can't imagine anybody trying to argue there's a better Bond than Craig. But I'm not really an expert. Well, good. We won't, we won't argue covered. over that then. Um, but here, man, he, the, the image that came to mind to me, I mean, he, he's aged as we all do since he first took up the role with Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. He looks like this middle-aged football coach. There's something about his, uh, his athlete's physique, which is distinctive for him from the other Bonds. He looks like this middle-aged football coach who's lost every game of the season, just wants it at, to end. He just wants the season to be over. He looks haggard. He looks great in the suits. I'll give you that. But really, there's no sense of investment or reinvigoration that you need to bring if you're going to do this character who's on his 24th film. Craig definitely brought that for the first three. For whatever reason, it doesn't come through here. And I think in the direction you feel it, too. Uh, I thought we were going to be okay with that opening steady cam shot, unbroken single take, unless they tricked us somehow that goes on oh, for there, a few minutes. There are a couple trick shots in there. There had to be see the because, edits, yeah. because it goes on so long. But it, it's, it's really a blast to watch and be taken through mm-hmm. from the streets in Mexico City, through the hotel room out the window to his objective. And I thought, all right, we're, we're, you know, back in form as we were with Skyfall with Mendes here. I think he put everything he had into that opening scene. Everyone seems to have put what they had into that opening scene because the rest is just exhausted. And that goes across the board. It goes, we'll probably hit all these and you can tell me which ones worked for you. I think it goes for the villain, Christoph Waltz, which was a shock to me that he didn't bring more to this picture. I think it goes for the cinematography, Hoyt von Hoytema, who I know you've talked about on the show before, does fantastic work and here is mostly using a palette of 
beiges and whites and maybe grays and doesn't vary much from that. This is just a two-hour-plus picture that seemed like it could barely get to its final few minutes, even though it had no idea how to end those few minutes either. Mm. I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> I had go- a different where are we experience. Start? And there are some things we do agree on and will agree on, but I enjoyed Spectre. I'm going to get to some things that didn't work for me, absolutely. But I do think, as I noted, the sense of it being a little bit of a retread, being a little bit tired or played out, you're suggesting exhausted. I get that in terms of the plot and the story, but I don't get it completely as it applies to Mendes and the direction. And I especially don't get it, Josh. And this is where the movie just really works for me. I don't get it as it applies to Daniel Craig. I certainly haven't seen any middle-aged football coaches that look like he does, but I think that there's no denying he is grayer and appears in every way older and more weary. But for me, that was a real strength of this movie, not a problem. I think it further humanizes his bond, which started right with Casino Royale, in a way that you get with no other bond. I think it's appropriate with the larger existential drive of this particular installment, opening, of course, with the Day of the Dead sequence emphasized with text on the screen and Bond is wearing that skeleton getup. It's not exactly subtle. It runs through encounters with old villains. He has tried to kill or successfully killed. It all culminates, not a spoiler, with a final life or death choice. So that runs through the entire film. I thought that weariness really worked. We're supposed to recognize that when Money Penny says, everybody says you're finished, it doesn't just mean he might be out of a job. Now, <laughs> was it problematic when Craig at one point holds Leia Seydoux's hand to comfort her in the back of a car, and it felt to me exactly like a father comforting a daughter. Father? How about grandpa? No, I'll go father (laughs) and not two lovers. Yes, that was problematic. And I looked it up, and it turns out there's not at all the wide gap, the truly wide gap I thought there was between them. She's 30, he's 47. 17 years is a lot, but it's 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 not anything unseemly. Physical presence more than anything else. Okay, so nevertheless, I think the beauty of Craig's Bond is that even with that age and that weariness, he is still exciting to watch physically. And I think he's still game for anything, as partly evidenced by the physique that Mendes does love so much to showcase, notably and undeniably in that opening credit sequence, the famous Bond sequence here with the Sam Smith theme. He's as lean and mean and, yes, wears the hell out of a suit as much as he ever has. And I think just for me, what I appreciate about Craig is that he has always struck me as the one self-aware Bond. He is the one Bond we see sweat. We see him really struggle. We see him sometimes barely survive situations. And then he has that little twinkle in his eye that doesn't express, damn, I'm amazing. It says, I know, I don't know how I survived that either, but someday my luck is probably going to run out. Not that the movie stops to really explore it fittingly, but I think there is a great, profound bit of dialogue here in this movie, Josh, where he's talking to Leia Seydoux, and she says, is that really what you want, living in the shadows, hunting, being hunted, always alone? And he says, I don't stop to think about it. There's a certain comfort in always having a mission and always doing precisely what you've been trained to do and what you are good at, the only thing you know how to do. What happens, though, when you have to stop to think about it, when you have to stop? So whether he's just being evasive there and a little coy, or he actually is more introspective than that or not, there is more introspection and self-awareness in that one line than in countless others from this franchise. And it only works because Craig can really sell that. So I still had a blast watching him. I think there's a certain profundity in just watching him on screen get older. I'm good with that. I have a question. What's that? Why, given every other possible option, does a man choose the life of a paid assassin? 
Well, it was that or the priesthood. <laughs> they do have a good scene together on the train as well, a conversation where they talk about how he's always moving something to that effect. Exactly. And, and you know, like, he's got an we objective. describe a shark. What and, happens when it's and gone? And I like that scene too. I think if all of those scenes work, it's because of the vitality that Seydoux brings to them, though, more than Craig. I, I would say Roger Moore is the most self-aware Bond and not always for good reasons. Maybe we can get into that with Chris Klemek. But uh, for Craig, okay, so here, this ties into what I actually did like about Quantum of Solace. I took a quick look here and it was because it was still as Casino Royale did. It had that, not just the grittiness that people talked about he brought to Bond, but the sense of doom, this sense Mm -hmm. of being stuck in this job that he was made for but maybe didn't enjoy. I mm-hmm. think the first two Craig Bond films tapped into that very well. It's a, it's a doom chic, so it makes it stylish, but it's still this sense that you're within a tragedy, really. You're, you're stuck within your own tragedy. And this is now, supposed to be the culmination of that. Well, okay, but Skyfall, I think, went further the other way Almost to camp. I mean, it had people getting eaten by Komodo dragons. I think Craig is more Bardem was self-aware a little than over Bardem the top. is like, mm-hmm. yeah, gone nuts in that film. And I kind of enjoyed that because I thought, okay, we're, we're melding some different eras here. We're pushing towards the camp, seeing where we can go with that. And that felt invigorating. I think here with Spectre, we're just somewhere in between. We, we've left behind. There are nods to that early doom sensibility Mm -hmm. and you've brought up one of them i think there's another one in a conversation he has at a lake house with one of his targets that touches on that too but there's really you know and the camp elements here too almost feel obligatory there's no sense of verve to any of those gestures that there was in something like skyfall and there certainly was in those first it's mellower but Uh, i like that about this movie it doesn't move like you would expect an action movie, a big action franchise to move. But I think that's to the credit of the cinematographer, the editor, and to Mendes as the director. I appreciated that we got to just kind of exist in this world and watch that Bond deal with where he's at in his life. I was, me, I was okay with that. It's not moving because it doesn't know where to go. It's it's at once playing catch-up. You you alluded to Captain America Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. I think, is the one you were thinking of. Yeah, and of certainly course. Mission Impossible Rogue Nation because we have this NSA-type Dark agency Knight even. plot. Yeah. Certainly. So this is what, the you know, the eighth or ninth blockbuster to touch on this idea. And the Bond films have always done this. They've always tapped into what was the current uh, paranoia, whether it is in the 80s, Cold War, fears, or, you know, going back to the 60s as well, I guess. And so it makes sense that they'd want to tap into that. But to me, in this film, it was almost as if, oh, uh, well, these other spy movies did that. So we should do it, too, because we've got nothing else here. We've Maybe. got we've got a release date, well, here's, yeah. but we don't have anything but else. But here's my defense of it. Because I agree with you on the surface that it's all those things. It's all those movies we talked about. It feels a little bit stale at this point. But in defense of the 53 screenwriters who I think are credited with contributing to this movie, all of those movies you mentioned, Josh, want us to a degree to actually think about how our privacy has ended, what we're willing or not willing to compromise for our security. Spectre, at least, isn't hypocritical about it at all. This movie only cares about that stuff insofar as it affects James Bond and his narrative. That's it. It's I don't even all, know if it cares about it that much. It's all a glorified MacGuffin to keep our focus on Bond. So you can call it cliche, you can call it naive, but you can't say the movie is trying to trick you. It's exactly what it is. It's all about James Bond and 
what he's going through. And that stuff is just window dressing. I think that's underselling Captain America Winter Soldier in particular. I think that movie was very interested in I, being I a 70s that. paranoid. Well, it's not no. hypocritical then. No, it's not. But I'm saying this movie is what it is completely diametrically opposed to Captain America Winter Soldier. It's not trying well, to be that. Uh, right. It's not trying to be anything. So it's, I, I just don't see it's how trying that's to be a about positive. Bond. It's trying to be timely and uh, and put a, this timely facade on the Bond character. And I guess having but seen... But if you're not expecting that from it, or if you're not expecting it to take any turns from what it is, it's exactly what it sets out to be from beginning to end. Based on the other three Craig Bond films, I, I certainly did expect more than this. I guess that's where I was at with it. Let's talk about some of the 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 tropes that they're trying to hit upon from the franchise and see how those may have worked in this film. One is in the villain, Christoph Waltz, and the other is in his henchman, played by Dave Bautista. I don't think either of those worked. I'll start with Bautista. He is a guy who we've seen in Guardians of the Galaxy coming from an MMA background and in Guardians of the Galaxy took a lot of people by surprise. I I wasn't the hugest fan of that film, but I thought he was clever, funny, had great timing there. Here, he's just required to be the rock, this threatening physical rock. And I don't mean you don't the mean rock. Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson. Johnson. No, no he, has, he, <laughs> he has, has a ton 20 of charisma. Times charisma. And there's a double loss here in that... It's just a bland part, and we all are aware that Batista can do better. I, Josh, I have a whole bunch of bullet points under what doesn't work, and one of them is that it wastes Dave Batista. I could basically just regurgitate everything you said. I didn't love Guardians of the Galaxy either, but I certainly liked it more than you did, and he was maybe my favorite part of the whole movie. Again, someone I didn't really know and didn't expect to be as good as he was on screen, but what a presence, and beyond that physical presence, showed real comedic timing. No, he doesn't have a lot of lines either, as he doesn't hear. I mean, that's kind of the joke, is that he doesn't talk at all, and he has one word. I think he gets one word, and it's supposed to be funny, and it's not really that funny at all. But I was hugely disappointed. After a decent intro. He gets a pretty memorable entrance. And it, it's okay. It could have gone somewhere from there. It's, it's intimidating and it shows him to be this physical specimen. And I didn't know he was in this movie. I haven't been reading anything about it or studying up on it at all and following the news. I saw him in the credits and then I couldn't wait for him to show up thinking this will be really inspired to have Dave Batista as the heavy. And then it completely wastes him. There's no doubt about it. So what... What are the bullet points that are in its favor? I'm, I'm still waiting for those. For I gave you. you. I gave you my take on the film in terms of how I think it's very consistent with the Craig character in particular. I found what they're doing with Bond here to be compelling. I enjoyed the action scenes as well. And I'll tell you that your note about Mendy's feeling that he seems a little bit exhausted, too. I don't know. It's semantics at this point, Josh, but we get that opening sequence. You said it all goes downhill from there. After that. What really hurts Spectre the most, I think, is how much it strains to probably try to tie up too many loose ends and include so much of Bond's entire legacy. And someone like Chris can really speak to this. It has enough references to other Bond movies in it that even I detected about 15 of them. So that tells you how present it is. But I'd argue the opposite. It might actually be because of that too ambitious for its own good. Klimek actually says in his review that the movie paradoxically tries to argue for Bond's relevance in the modern world while also trying to squeeze in all of his greatest hits. And I do think it goes too far in this regard, but it's not out of laziness or out of neglect. The word Chris uses at one point is suffocating. I think that's a good way to describe it, but it is aiming at something. I think the fact that it is trying to do all that, to bring in the total of the Bond legacy, to sum up this Craig Bond, who we may never see as Bond again, it's hard for me to consider that uninspired. 
How about Waltz? How about Waltz? Information is all. Is it not? For example, you must know by now that the double O program is officially dead. <laughs> Which leads me to speculate exactly why you came. So, James, why did you come? I came here to kill you. And I thought you came here to die. I didn't dislike him, but I didn't love him either. And I think that and that's they're probably shame is. For an actor yeah, like I think that. that's I, mean, I think that's a shame. But <laughs> if I can defend it a little bit, I guess I found it a little bit refreshing that he didn't chew as much scenery as I thought he would. So whether that makes him not as fun, not as campy, not truly a great Bond villain, he could have really come on and just hammed it right. up and and literally chewed on every word mm-hmm. as he spit it out. And I kind of expected him to do that. And instead, what I found is that Mendes decided to let the cinematography and the editing actually make him more intimidating and more of a presence than anything he does by veiling us from him, by his constantly showing him in great. shadows. His yes. introduction is great. The introduction and then how we see him or don't see him is actually what makes him a scary and interesting figure, much more than Waltz himself. And I think that introduction, which is at this <laughs> kind of laughable meeting of all the bad guys in the world. In the world, yeah. <laughs> they, they have a conference room, and it's really big, as you'd expect. PowerPoint. And, <laughs> I mean, really, PowerPoint? <laughs> yeah, you'd think they'd have some uh, better technology. It is a great entrance because we don't see his face, as you said, and it does exactly what you're talking about. It uses his own sort of anti-charisma and by that I mean like not the sort of charisma you'd want to be near but you want to watch that's Mm -hmm. what Waltz has in most of his roles and it uses that without chewing the scenery it employs it very well but after that point, mm-hmm. it, he mo- and it might be a problem of screenwriting more than Waltz because the poor guy, he's just continually thwarted. He is. And and at the end, so, and he's repeatedly wounded and <laughs> for, for this domineering villain. He right. has a, a really rough time of it. Well, also, I went back and looked at my Casino Royale notes. And first, I found that a lot of what I loved about Craig's Bond and liked about that movie actually does apply to him here in this film. But one thing that certainly didn't is... I listed off during that review all the ways that film, Casino Royale, subverts the Bond mythos and does reinvigorate it. And that's probably why Casino Royale is actually my favorite Bond movie. I think I could say it's my favorite Bond film of Of all all of them. them. Yeah. And it's my favorite of the Craigs. I do like Skyfall and then Spectre would be after that. But one of my notes was that it subverts the villain trope in that film because the villain disappears before any big climactic showdown and he isn't a master villain. I argued that that was so appropriate for 2006 at the time because the world is no longer that simple. It's no longer that black and white. What do we get then? And this fits your point about the movie maybe being a little bit too lazy from a story standpoint. What we get here with Spectre is it says, nope, we're undoing all of that. It really is all run by a big puppet master. You just have to be an evil villain with a bunch of money and some ambition and you're causing all the world's disasters. So it then subverts what it did so well to initially subvert with the first Craig film. And I think what the first Craig film, Casino Royale, did with that, uh, with the villain, is that it internalized the drama and the conflict. So it brought it more within the Bond character. And again, that's something that Quantum of Solace, I think, built upon. Mm -hmm. Skyfall had some fun with. And here in... Spectre, it's just kind of maybe sort of there. Mm -hmm. I'll give you some more ammunition. Monica Bellucci, wasted. Mm. As I said, I don't follow a lot of the news, haven't been really tracking this Bond film at all. But even I heard about how, wow, they cast a Bond girl who's older and who's 
at least more in line with Daniel Craig's age. And then we see her on screen for about five minutes. We do. I think she has a good five minutes, though. I do, I think too. She, I mean, this grieving widow figure. That just makes you miss her more when she's yeah. not there, oh, I think, a well, little bit. I mean, how many women in Bond films deserve about 20 times the screen time they get? That's one of those highly negative tropes that the franchise has yeah. had. And I think this is an example of it. They're careful to kind of find a way for him to offer her some sort of morning after gesture mm-hmm. that's a little laughable as well. Right. So they they make posturing towards that. But she deserved more time because I think she is pretty good in the few minutes she has. I will say as well, despite how much I like what they're doing with Bond and the way Craig plays it, by the end, I never did truly feel that Craig was suffering under the weight of all those past choices, the way the movie wants us to. And in a you really nitpicky note. Scooby-Doo, Funhouse of Mirrors exactly. ending? Exactly. Yeah, it's not great. I'm not going to argue with you, Josh. Speaking of not great, <laughs> there is an international vote at one point that you would think, since it's especially about privacy and security, <laughs> you can, that you can privacy see the other guy's and security screen. might matter. Instead, they've got like the biggest <laughs> computer monitors ever so that everybody in the room knows yeah. who didn't vote yay or nay. I mean... Okay, I just, yeah, that bugged me, of course, but it wasn't enough to derail the movie for me, that's for sure. I love the opening sequence we've talked about a little bit. One of the things I liked about it is that, and again, not a Bond expert, but in my reflection on the Bond movies I've seen, when I think about the big action set pieces, I'm always seeing Roger Moore skiing down a mountain, (laughs) right, evading bad guys, yeah, or he's in some kind of car chase, but... They're out in the middle of nowhere, and really the only people who are in direct danger are Bond, whoever is with him in the car, and the bad guys. That opening Day of the Dead sequence, who knows how many extras are part of that. I felt the raised stakes of Bond being involved in something where he's there to thwart a big terrorist incident that would result in a lot of casualties. And of course, instead, he may end up causing it himself. So as that helicopter is spinning out of control, I was always aware of the people on the ground. And when it was over, I felt a little bit like, okay, I can take a breath now. Mm -hmm. I like when an action sequence can make me feel that way. I agree. And that raises a question of whether or not the movie pursues what's happening in that scene. And is it deconstructing the Bond character? Because one of the thoughts running through my mind is, he could care less if this copter goes down in the middle of this crowd. He's intent He doesn't stop to on, think about it, Josh. He doesn't stop to think about it. He's intent on getting this one guy. And so is this does the movie follow through on that to show him as someone who is not necessarily doing what he does in the name of protecting the public? Because ostensibly that's why they pay him, mm-hmm. right? That's why the British government pays him. That opening scene that's not on his mind at all. Is that something that the movie takes and runs with? I don't I don't think so. I think it just lets it sit there in the opening scene. It could have been an interesting thread. It doesn't really follow through on it, but it's still really cool. Spectre is currently out in wide release. Take that, Josh. If you agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. I just want to make sure you're still giving it a positive review, right? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Few massacre theaters ago, I'm afraid I exhausted the extent of my French, so we'll do the English portion of a pretty well-known scene next. Plus, Adam will add another candidate for the film spotting golden brick. Stay with us. Gold finger. He's the man, the man with the Midas touch. A spider's A cold finger Beckons you To enter his web of sin 
Hey folks, just a quick interruption to give a shout out to our friends over at Harry's.com, a returning sponsor here on Film Spotting. If you haven't heard yet, and Josh, looking at your face, you clearly have, though I guess every month is Movember for you. I live like it's Movember. <laughs> there are a bunch of guys this month not shaving in support of research on men's major health issues. Harry's is the official partner of the Movember Foundation and will be donating money and helping raise awareness for men's health. So whether you're growing a beard or want an amazing shave or you just like the stubble that Josh regularly sports, Harry's is a company you can feel good about. The company was started by two guys who are passionate about creating a better shaving experience by delivering an amazing shave at an affordable price directly to your door. And they also give 1% of their sales and 1% of their time back to the communities they serve. Josh, I've been waiting for a listener to give us a testimonial. Do we have one? Because they use some of our other sponsors and partners, and they send us their notes about how much they like those products, and we finally got one from Stephen Cherry in New York City. All right. Stephen says, I've been shaving with a Harry's razor for well over a year now, and my satisfaction comes from its superiority. The blades are different from conventional ones. They're larger and have a small but important flex to them. So you can, if you want, shave in long strokes, even across the jawline. They seem sharper as well and to last longer. Like Josh, I don't shave every day, often just Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and my Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday growth is less visible with Harry's. I don't, unlike Adam, have Harry's on a repeating order. I think I'm only on my second batch. He sent us some other comments as well. Steve is definitely a satisfied customer of Harry's. Their starter Truman set is an amazing deal. With our code, FILMSPOTTING, you get their razor handle, their three razor blades, and a choice of either shave cream or foaming shave gel, all for just $10. Go to harrys.com and get $5 off your first purchase with coupon code FILMSPOTTING. That's harrys.com and enter coupon code FILMSPOTTING at checkout. We thank Harry's for their support of Film Spotting and their support of Movember. Our unit has been given a hollow, a database that contains a detailed map of the capital and a list of every known pod. These pods can trigger anything from bombs to traps to mutts. Whatever they contain, they are meant to kill you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 76 Hunger Games. Now, come on, that's not fair. It just feels like 76 Hunger Games, doesn't it, Josh? No. This is film spotting. Come on. A clip there like from Mocking J Part Two. Yeah, I do. Lately, Begr- I like the Begrudgingly, you like Yeah, them. I'm getting on board. It is the fourth film and final, potentially, chapter in the Hunger Games franchise. It is a franchise that I've warmed to over the last couple of entries. Josh, you've been a fan of it since the very beginning, though. And you've I read the books, liked too. The, I've only read the first book. Okay. I liked the first film. I like Quantum of Solace, so I, I like <laughs> I anything. Mean, that says all we need to know, Josh. Except Spectre. Well, we'll see if the fourth film here from Jennifer Lawrence and the Hunger Games crew is better than the fourth Daniel Craig Bond movie for you, Josh. It is the film we plan to review on next week's show, plus a top five to be determined. I know that you put out the call on social media today. got a lot of good suggestions. I don't know if we're ready to land on one, but there might be a leader in the clubhouse. So stay tuned to social media. You can follow us at Film Spotting or at Larson on Film on Twitter, and you can play along with whatever top five we do decide on. If you follow us on social media, you probably caught wind of some pretty exciting news this past week. As if, Josh, we weren't 
consistently being outclassed by our sister podcast, Film Spotting SVU. True. Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore. Wait till you hear about their new sibling. We are thrilled to announce that we have another addition to the Film Spotting Podcast Network, the next picture show with some very esteemed members of the Dissolve Aspera, as Sam likes to call it, our co-producer. The Dissolve folks, very good friends of us here at Film Spotting. Many of those people have been on the show over the years. Scott Tobias, Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky is producing the show, and Rachel Handler, who used to work with them at the Dissolve. We have yet to become acquainted with her, but she's going to be part of the next picture show as well. It's a bi-weekly show, two episodes every two weeks, and kind of follows what they were doing with their movie of the week over at The Dissolve, which I know for a lot of us was one of our favorite features of that site. They'll devote the first podcast to a classic film that has shaped the way we perceive a new release. So their first episode was All the President's Men, and then the second episode was more specifically about Spotlight, the new journalism film from director Tom McCarthy. I'm right in the middle of the first episode now. Really good stuff. Kind of frustrated, though. It's not in the iTunes feed yet, yet. so I I didn't have it on my phone, so I had to stop it, and I got to go find it. I'm hoping by the time most people are hearing us right now, you will find it on iTunes. But as of this taping, it is still currently in review by Apple. More information about The Next Picture Show, though, you can find currently at nextpicturershow.net or look for the link in the show notes at filmspotting.net. And if it isn't there for whatever reason, I know Scott Tobias on Twitter has provided a link. You can find it in the Film Spotting feed and my feed as well. Absolutely. A quick Pantheon update. So a few weeks ago, we got an email from Brian Hayes, a listener in San Diego, and the subject line was episode 559 mistake. And, you know, we get emails with subjects like that. Doesn't really distinguish too it often. from yeah. any other email. But this one said, when discussing your favorite back-to-back movies, so movies from directors that were made consecutively, you said that Dr. Strangelove and 2001 were ineligible because they're in the Pantheon. And I did mean that I thought one of them was in the Pantheon. I was pretty confident we had never put Dr. Strangelove in there as much as we both appreciate that movie. But I figured over the years, after doing a Sacred Cow review of 2001 and other opportunities where it's come up since then, that there was no doubt one of the greatest films of all time was in our Pantheon. And Brian says, they're not in the Pantheon. Neither of them. Put them in the Pantheon. Love the show. Again, Brian in San Diego. He has a point. He does have a point. We need First, I was wrong. We need these rules. We need bylaws for the Pantheon. Something official. Maybe. Maybe. And we have been kicking that around that maybe we do tie it in more directly to our Sacred Cow reviews. And a movie is ultimately deemed only truly sacred if we're willing to put it in the Pantheon. So a movie like Raiders of the Lost Ark, which did go into the Pantheon, it's in. Yeah. Pulp Fiction, it's, it's in. in. There Edward are Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands. It's in. Or not. Adam. <laughs> Or not. And that's where the House of Cards crumble, unfortunately. But we did think this might be a perfect opportunity. Why wait for another top five or another missed opportunity or another opportunity for me to just blatantly misspeak? Let's go ahead and do it. Stanley Kubrick's 2001, the greatest science fiction movie of all time. It's in the Pantheon. We can no longer include it in any other top five list. Mind is going 
If you want to see the complete list and yet so incomplete list of Pantheon movies, visit filmspotting.net, click on top fives, and you'll see the link there for the Pantheon. It's about time 2001 was there, and now it's time for Massacre Theater. We perform a scene badly. You get a chance to win a prize. Last time, we massacred this. Sir, night. I am sending you on a night's errand. You will report to Captain Cargill at the furthermost outpost of the realm, Fort Sedgwick. My personal seal will assure your safety through many miles of wild and hostile country. I was wondering. Yes? I was wondering, sir, how will I be getting there? You think I don't know? No, sir. You think I don't know? No, sir, it's just that I don't... Hold your tongue. I happen to be in a generous mood and I will grant you a boon. See that peasant out there? He calls himself Timmins. He's going to your Fort Sedgwick this very afternoon. You can ride with him if you like. He knows the way. Thank you, that is all. Sir Knight, I just pissed in my pants. And nobody can do anything about it. That's Maury Chaikin as Major Fambro and Kevin Costner as Lieutenant Dunbar in 1990's Dances with Wolves. It was written by Michael Blake and directed by Costner. So speaking of me misspeaking and just blatantly being an idiot, we get to this. That Massacre was part of episode 561, a show we devoted to our top five movies of 1990, along with a blind cow review of Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. It was a movie long championed by you, Josh, and until that episode was unseen by me. That Massacre, though, was also... As I mentioned before we did it, something of a last-minute call. Mm -hmm. And after 560-plus shows, last-minute decisions can result in emails like this one from Christopher Reese in Lexington, Kentucky. Christopher Reese, listeners may remember from Dr. Shivago fame, it seems Mm -hmm. he is always here to discipline and scold us. Okay, guys, we are getting old here. This week's Massacre Theater is from Dances with Wolves, and how do we know this? Is it because you have done Dances with Wolves before? Yes, but more than that... You have done this exact same scene before. (laughs) How do I know this? Because I won Massacre Theater when this was the Massacre Theater scene in episode 347 when you reviewed Meek's Cutoff and did your top five revisionist westerns. To be fair, I wasn't here yet. No, you weren't. So I will say again what I said then. This scene is easy to spot because it is easily the most memorable scene from a movie that on the whole is fairly blah. And thus, no matter whether it is Matty Ballgame or Josh having some fun with the late Maury Chaikin's part, which is a whole lot of fun, or Adam still maintaining about the same amount of acting ability that Kevin Costner has generally. Something about my monotone. A lot of people said I nailed Costner's (laughs) monotone. I don't know. It's a scene that jumps out. So then my question is, do I get to win again for getting the right answer again? No. In fact, you're not going to get a T-shirt, and I'm actually recalling your last T-shirt. You have to take it off. You have to put it back in the box and send it. How many years ago was that? (laughs) It was a few years ago. I will have more to say to Adam. Christopher goes on about he misunderstands certain aspects of Edward Scissorhands. Ooh, I'll be looking forward Mm. to that. He's going to save it for later. I don't know. I think it's a pretty straightforward movie. But, Christopher, I look forward to being scolded even further from you. Yes, it is true. Despite the fact that we are often very good about checking the Massacre Theater archive to make sure that we're not duplicating a movie. Or if we are, we at least try to make sure that we're not duplicating a scene. But as Dances with Wolves is a movie that is still unseen by me. It's maybe not all that surprising that I completely forgot that I'd actually done that exact same performance in that scene and apparently four or five years ago. Your acting hasn't improved. No, no, <laughs> which is, of course, not really a surprise. I will add that most people who wrote in did not share Christopher's sentiment about the movie, which he called 
on the whole, fairly blah. A lot of passionate defenders of Dance of the Wolves out there. I would not have expected that. So reach in to the film spotting hat, Josh. Pick out this week's winner. The actual winner, not Christopher, Mm -mm. is Rochelle Fetters from Seattle. Congratulations, Rochelle. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your film spotting t-shirt. You get to keep this one. Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like he said quite a bit more than that. Well, let's see what spin I can put on my classic Kevin Costner monotone. For this week's edition of Massacre Theater, it does tie in with a topic we are discussing or have discussed on this week's show. We're not going to give you anything more than that because the scene's probably pretty obvious. Josh, you're going to start it off. I really can't wait for this. I hope you've been preparing. Well, I haven't been rehearsing, but I think I have it in my head. Okay. We'll see how that translates. (laughs) Yes, we will. And action. Consider for a moment the world a rat lives in. It's a hostile world indeed. If a rat were to scamper through your front door right now, would you greet it with hostility? I suppose I would. Has a rat ever done anything to you to create this animosity you feel toward them? Rats spread disease. They bite people. Rats were the cause of the bubonic plague, but that's some time ago. I propose to you any disease a rat could spread, a squirrel could equally carry. Would you agree? Yes. Yet, I assume you don't share the same animosity with squirrels that you do with rats, do you? No. Yet, they're both rodents, are they not? And except for the tail, they even rather look alike, don't they? And And scene. scene. I'm not sure which country we managed to set back diplomatic relations (laughs) with the most. Don't don't give a clue away. I'm not going to give a clue away. All right. Wait, you don't think my performance gave it away? How dare you? That greatly confused How dare you? If you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, November 23rd. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official massacre theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. You seem a little choked up. Are you okay there? Can you you breathe? I'm fine. When my mother died... She was talking to the animals that had gathered on the ceiling. She spoke to them tenderly. All you animals, she said. Her last words, all scattered. Different trains, places she'd always meant to go. A clip there from the new movie, the new essay movie from experimental artist and musician Lori Anderson. Josh, I'm going to save any substantial thoughts, if I have any substantial thoughts to offer on this movie for later, as I'm pretty sure it's going to come up again in the next four to five weeks on the show. I also, frankly, badly need to rewatch Heart of a Dog, but I want to be sure to recommend it to our Chicago-based listeners as it's opening at the Music Box this weekend. I'm sure it's also playing in other select cities. I also want to get it on the books for Golden Brick Consideration. It's a film that is actually dedicated to Anderson's late husband, the musician Lou Reed. She might as well have dedicated it to me. It's a documentary, and I'm big on documentaries, but it's also about memory. It's about mortality. And it's about narrative and how we incorporate narratives into our own lives. Also, believe it or not, it has way more to say about data collection and surveillance and national security than Spectre or probably all of the Bond movies combined. So that I'll believe it is a yeah, of course you do. It's a wide ranging, heartfelt, deeply emotional, wonderful exploration of humanity and animals and 
everything in between. It really did kind of knock me out. So I can't wait, hopefully, for you to see it and us to talk about Heart of a Dog a little bit more. Yeah, now I'm sorry that I missed it in Toronto, but we'll definitely catch it before the end of the year. All right, Adam, what do you do when a top five list draws from a 24-film franchise? Rewatch them all? Well, who are we, Matt Singer? Instead, we'll share listeners' picks for the best Bond tropes and get help from another completist, Chris Klemek. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. You We had to feature a little bit of great Bond theme music this week. We do have the top five ahead here. But first, we wanted to take a moment to thank some of our donors this week to Film Spotting, sending us some of their hard-earned cash. It really does go such a long way in keeping us doing what we're doing. We start with David in Charlotte, North Carolina, who told us, Josh, you got to start somewhere. So here you go. I never miss an episode. Eric in Folsom, California. Jesse in Providence, Rhode Island. And Evie in Canberra, Australia. My stepdad, Mark, and I are huge fans of your show. Many weekends we'll share a knowing, stop talking, it's film spotting time look. This donation is in honor of his 56th birthday and to celebrate that we'll probably watch some Satchajit Ray films that he just ordered after listening to you talk about him. Those people in Canberra really know how to party. We are both hardcore film buffs, so thank you for bringing us closer together through our shared love. Thanks again. Love, Evie. Well, or thank you. Evie, as the case might be. It might be. It might be. We would probably get that wrong. I'm going with Evie, and we do want to wish Mark a happy birthday. On our last show, in our donation segment, we mention Larry Carino, longtime listener and supporter of the show in Pembroke Pines, Florida. He sent us a very generous donation, a gold-level donation, but we didn't have his note yet, Josh. So now we have his note, and I feel like... We owe it to him to read it on air. I don't recall how I found film spotting, but I do know it was the episode where you tackled Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. That was my gateway into the show, and I've been hooked ever since. I don't get to see as many movies as I used to. I'm now a husband, father of two, and a business owner. So the days I used to spend binging on DVDs or taking in a double feature are gone, at least for a while. I do my best to stay current and discover hidden gems, occasionally taking in a big studio flick. Sadly, Pacific Rim was one of those for shame, Guillermo. And your show not only helps guide me in my search, but also informs, entertains, and turns me on to filmmakers and movies I knew nothing about. You've truly introduced me to some real winners. In fact, it was a not-so-recent recommendation from Adam that made it obvious I owed you guys and needed to pay the dealer. Adam, your suggestion to check out the You Must Remember This podcast, starting with the season Charles Manson's Hollywood, was one of the best tip-offs I've gotten to anything in popular culture in a long time. Fear not, I am able to balance my love and dedication to that podcast and yours. I was getting jealous. No favorites, guys, and long commutes give me plenty of time to listen. But seriously, what a great recommendation. Thanks for the hours of enjoyment, many laughs, some frustration, but overall for keeping the Cine East in touch and armed for my next cinema-centric debate at work. Well, thanks so much for that, Larry. And yeah, that recommendation of Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This Podcast and that Charles Manson's Hollywood series, that recommendation was just a no-brainer. I feel as good about that as anything I've ever recommended in the history of the show. I just can't imagine giving that a try and not wanting to devour it. I'm also really enjoying her current series about MGM. I think 
we've got Debbie hooked on it now too. Good. She, it, it took I made one a plea for it. I made a plea for it, it at dinner. We were it was out the, the Judy other night. Garland episode. That's was it? what did it? Okay, it wasn't me just articulating so eloquently why it's such a good podcast. Apparently, it took a little more than that. Wow. Okay. Thanks, Debbie. We also have a platinum level donation that comes to us from Leonie Connellan and Paul Dossett. They're also in Australia. We got these great listeners, supporters of the show, writing in with wonderful notes from Australia. My partner Paul and I have been listening to Film Spotting since 2005. You may remember me from being unable to pronounce my name, which I probably still got wrong. Knitting your child a red cabled baby hat yeah, or teaching you that. There you go. Or teaching you via email how to pronounce Melbourne. Melbourne. Is that right? See? Yeah. I've learned to go to work, by the way. Anyway, after being in a relationship for over 16 years, we recently got married. Our parents were supposed to enter ahead of us to the strains of Simon and Garfunkel, but instead, they all accidentally jumped the gun and walked down the aisle to the dulcet tones of Peter Cook a la The Princess Bride, the origin of love from Hedwig played during the signing of the register. Love it. Our first dance was to Gene Kelly singing I've Got a Crush on You, which was cut from An American in Paris, a film we watched thanks to film spotting. In lieu of gifts, we set up a website on Squarespace, of course, asking our guests to donate money to podcasts and projects we love. The recent donation you received from me was thanks to our very generous wedding guests. Go buy yourself something nice. Paying for parking at cinemas is nice, right? We love you. Well, I don't know what to say. I is mean, that it a was first such, time? Yeah, to get I think a so. Donation a like donation that? like that, and it was a very generous donation. Of course, Leonie says that the guests at the wedding were really the generous ones, but how about them instead of accepting gifts for themselves? And I know some people do this. I, of course, do not do this at my <laughs> wedding. I wanted a bunch of stuff. Never I mean, heard of anything. I need like a this. mixer, but <laughs> they went ahead and had some altruism in mind, and it really is sweet to hear. And, of course, I love all the movie references that abounded throughout their wedding. So congratulations, Leonie and Paul. We wish you all the best. Speaking of generous listeners, one final note. We were talking about Dances with Wolves and Massacre Theater in the last segment. I did get a gift from another longtime listener and supporter of the show, Jim Polini in Bethpage, New York, who said... In his note, a gift for ABK, Dances with Wolves is extremely entertaining. Enjoy it. If you don't shed a few tears during the penultimate scene, you may not be human. So he sent me actually a gift. I didn't even know you could do this actually through iTunes. You can gift someone a movie. The whole movie, you just have it there Yeah, in yeah. Your so feed. I actually don't know if he purchased it for me and I always have access to it or it's just a rental. But nevertheless, you get a link from iTunes that says, here you go. This is a gift I like from that. Jim Polini. And now anytime I want, I can watch Dances with Wolves on iTunes, though I know Dances with Wolves fans out there right now are screaming at the thought of me watching Dances with Wolves on my laptop or my iPhone. I probably won't do it that way. I can hook it up to my TV, Jim. That might be the route I go. Of course, just love how thoughtful and generous our listeners are. And love is a stranger Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hi there, listeners over at the Film Spotting Mothership. This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting SVU, and on our latest episode, Allison Wilmore and I discuss the latest season of Project Greenlight and debate whether its director, Jason Mann, should have fought so hard to shoot his movie, The Leisure Class, on film. Yeah, you should have shot it on digital. Film. Digital. Film. Tune in for more stirring discourse like this and for our recommendations of movies from Project Greenlight producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck that you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen, search for us on iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Filmspotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable. The art house is now in your house. 
Hi, this is John C. Riley, and you're listening to Film Spotting. This is Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. It's top five time, and after discussing the 24th official installment in the James Bond series earlier in the show, Spectre, we're going to share our top five Bond tropes, a top five that really started just being called top five Bond stuff. We were thinking about any gadgets or cars. We're going to get to some of those picks here in a moment, but we knew we needed some help, so to help us here with this top five is Chris Klemek. He is a film and theater critic and a semi-regular panelist on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. He recently wrote a great essay for The Atlantic on the history of Spectre. That's Spectre, the acronym, not the movie. But mostly he's here because he knows Bond a hell of a lot better than we do. Chris, thanks for coming back on Film Spotting. I'm excited to do it. Thank you. I'm glad to be on a show with you, Chris. I, I know we've had some Twitter confrontations, but I'm trying to remember what those were about. I'm thinking maybe Rocky or uh, pos- I think it was possibly your failure to appreciate Predator properly. Oh, Predator! That's, That's for right. Sure. Yeah. He definitely well, deserves chiding. I, for I that. know Singer is with me on this one, <laughs> but not a surprise. You'll change your mind when you catch up with Predators. Trust me. <laughs> Well, speaking of Singer, we'll get to him in one moment because he helped us out with this top five and a voicemail we threw out to our listeners. First, we thought they were going to help us. They were going to bail us out. Turns out we really needed you, Chris, to be our hero. But we were wondering, what about those famous Bond cars? And Tom Morris wrote in the Aston Martin bulletproof and loaded with guns in an ejector seat from Goldfinger 1964. Trevor Brown said, one of my favorites is the Lotus Esprit from The Spy Who Loved Me. A little over the top, but as a kid seeing it turn into that submarine was pretty awesome. That does sound pretty awesome. We also heard from listeners with their favorite gadgets, Josh. Miles Lewis Alexander, he went with the laser watch in GoldenEye. Aaron Teachman on Twitter said, love the pen in GoldenEye. The concentration on Brosnan's face counting clicks is fun. Crucial moment as well. He's also a fan of the Aston Martin Vanish. That's from Die Another Day. Robert Shaw's Garote. Is that Go with right? it. Garrett in a watch. I don't remember that one, but from I, I think Russia. It's a Garrett, although a, I, I don't know. A Garrett? Garrett or, or Garrett. All right. Something lethal. That's from Russia with love. And also, of course, Ajab's hat from Goldfinger. We heard from VC Wallace on Twitter. He wrote, number one, gyrocopter. Number two, gyrocopter. Number three, number four, number five, gyrocopter from that scene in You Only Live Twice. Are you a fan of the gyrocopter as well, Chris? Uh, yes, Little Nelly is the name of the gyrocopter. Indeed. I, I See, really like the coded message got the that right guy. sends after to Q saying that uh, some, uh, I don't have exactly the line, but it's something like some dishonorable gentleman made advances, but she defended her virtue admirably or something like wow. that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so VC Wallace there also did mention the name Little Nelly. It meant nothing to me, but... Thank you, Chris, for supporting our listener. Jay Mann on Twitter said, favorite Bond gadget. There it is, the submarine car, hands down. Why? Because it's a submarine and also a car. Enough said. Okay, there are also one-liners, some famous Bond quips. And I think Matt Singer did us all a favor by calling in with this voicemail and his favorite. Hey, guys, this is Matt Singer from Film Spotting SVU calling to contribute to your James Bond retrospective. I am sure you're going to get plenty of feedback from listeners on their favorite gadgets and cars and theme songs. Uh, so instead, I thought, in, uh, rather than repeat any of those, I'm going to give you my all-time favorite pun from the James Bond series. And that comes from Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which has James Bond, played by George Lazenby, undercover as a genealogist at the lair of Ernst Stavro Blofeld. He's dressed in a kilt. And he's surrounded by a dozen gorgeous women at this dinner held in his honor. 
and the Blofeld henchwoman in charge of the place refuses to let any of the ladies give Bond their room numbers so he can visit them after hours. So instead, one of them discreetly writes her room number on Bond's inner thigh with a tube of lipstick. And when she does this, Bond makes a visible reaction. And so the henchwoman sees it, and she asks if there's anything wrong, and James Bond's response is perfect. Just a slight stiffness coming on in the shoulder. Due to the altitude, no doubt. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much, Matt. For that. So some of the ones that we're not going to dive into, some of those Bond tropes there, the real Bond tropes that we took from another film spotting listener we'll get to in a moment. But I thought it would be important here to set up our Bond bona fides or lack thereof. We're calling you an expert, Chris, but we'll see if you truly are that, though I think you've already proved that. What about you, though, Josh? What's your background with Bond? Well, I think the unfortunate thing with Bond is you're you're sort of stuck with the Bond you grew up on. And for Roger me, Moore for us, right? Seventies <laughs> youth, it's Roger Moore. And I thought he was the coolest then. Now I I think he's kind of gross, to be honest with you. And <laughs> and I wish I'd had another era, but I go to Octopussy, I go to Moonraker, Live and Let Die. Those are the ones I saw on repeat. And since then I would go back, and I think even on TV as a kid, I would see some of the Connery ones too. And once I started working as a critic, I would see, you know, the ones this would have been about the time of Pierce Brosnan taking over. So I've seen most of those and, of course, the Craig one. So I think I've seen just about all of them. I'm not a completist, but mostly all of them only once. Hmm. So I wanted to be very upfront about just how lacking I am in Bond knowledge because I thought I had seen a fair number of the films and maybe this counts as a fair number. I looked through the listing of those 24, again, quote unquote, official movies. I've seen 15. I don't know how that ranks compared to you, Josh, but I've seen all four Daniel Craig movies, all four Brosnan. I have seen none of the Timothy Dalton or George Lazenby, his one on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I've seen four of the seven Roger Moore and three of the six Connery. That's it. So I watched those three Conneries when I was a senior in college, I think. We bought the Bond VHS box. Nice. Yeah, it was it was that long ago that I had to watch them on VHS. And then I grew up with those Roger Moore films. They'd come on TV or whatever. I'd watch them with my dad. But I missed some of those, like Moonraker, The Spy Who Loved Me. I have seen Live and Let Die and For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, and A View to a Kill. So That's the extent of my knowledge that will explain why I'm probably noticeably absent for most of this top five. Chris, what about you? Where did your love from Bond come from, and how have you gotten to be such a pro with the franchise over the years? Well, I was introduced to them by my dad. I remember he had a a set, like a box set of three VHS tapes that I think had some of the the great early Conneries, like From Russia with the Love and uh, Goldfinger was in there. The first one that I saw in the theater was The Living Daylights in 1987, the first of the two Timothy Dalton installments. And, um, you know, weirdly, I've actually gotten more into this as an adult. Like, I was aware of them as a kid, but um, they, the, the Bond films of the 60s and 70s that I caught in fragments on TV, I mean, they seemed not to measure up in terms of sophistication to something that was current to me, like, you know, Lethal Weapon or, or Die Hard. Um, so uh, it's, it's really only as an adult that I've, I've come to have this, this sort of weirdly nostalgic appreciation of them, even though the, the ones of which I'm most fondest are from way before my own lifetime. Also, there was another podcast called James Bonding that mm-hmm. these two comics, Matt Mira and uh, Matt, Gourley. Uh, Matt Gourley, have been hosting for the last two years. That um, Even though it is you know, largely devoted to affectionate mocking of these films, it's had the, the effect of 
increasing my interest in them. Oh, and also Austin Powers. Austin Powers, uh, you know, obviously a, a Bond, a parody of many things, but primarily Bond. And uh, when that came out along in the late 90s, that deepened my interest also. So can you say that you've seen all 24 of them? Uh, yes, I just recently watched For Your Eyes Only, which was the, the last one. That one had slipped through somehow. Okay, well, you really are going to do the heavy lifting for us here in this segment. We'll see how prepared Josh came, but we really didn't know how to tackle this as people who follow us on social media probably saw or heard last week's show. We didn't even really know what to call it. We were calling it just Top 5 Bond Stuff. And then to save us, out of nowhere came Laura Ellis from Dade City, Florida. All you have to do is play Monty Norman's James Bond theme, and I begin to smile. I've been seeing the Bonds as they come out since Thunderball. I'd have seen Goldfinger, but at the time, my mother thought it was too violent. But I could not be held back for Bond number four. Now number 24 is out. I drove 43 miles to the theater listening to the Thomas Newman soundtrack. Laura goes on. Every Bond film begins with a spectacular stunt, and the Spectre opener at the Day of the Dead Festival in Mexico City was no exception. So there we go. Laura sets us up. Number one. An opening stunt. Chris, we go to you. What is your favorite Bond opening stunt? Okay, I feel like a lot of people are going to go with the Union Jack parachute ski jump from uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, but I'm going to interpret stunt as just an audacious thing, not necessarily a a feat of great athleticism. So I'm going to go with You Only Live Twice, where the the pre-title sequence consists of James Bond's murder. You know, the movie doesn't end during the opening credits, so there's, there's more to it. But um, it's, a, it's a bold, exciting, provocative way to, to open the movie. So You Only Live Twice, 1967. Something similar happens in my pick for Skyfall. They kind of end in that way before the credits fall, um, leaving us in doubt at least to what happens to Bond there. But I just love the opening where the point where it really takes off for me is he's chased this guy through streets on a motorcycle. They end up on this train. And he commandeers the construction digger to go after the guy with the bucket. I mean, that just kind of put it, that's Bond outrageousness Well, there is no vehicle that Bond best. cannot pilot or <laughs> that's what drive. I love. Or, that's uh... what I love. Like, it's the one <laughs> yeah. thing in the world you think, maybe he hasn't learned this yet, but no, he has. And then, of course, it has that great moment in the middle there after he jumps off the digger and pauses just half a second to straighten his suit. You yeah, know, Craig, Craig does that so that. well. Yeah, he's the best at that. And Skyfall, one I'm obviously familiar with, I do love that opening sequence. To your point, Chris, about the skills that Bond seems to be capable of and how he can drive anything, to go back to our friend Matt Singer, he rewatched all the Bond films and ranked them from worst to first. And he had a formula for how he talked about the movies. And one of his notes was always, what's the thing Bond is surprisingly skilled at? So in You Only Live Twice, he says Connery's Bond is a surprisingly skilled ninja. And in 1983's Octopussy, Roger Moore's Bond is a surprisingly skilled backgammon player and circus clown. So (laughs) Matt points out fun things like that. We'll link to that great article in our show notes over at FilmSpot. Yes, now to be fair, um, You Only Live Twice does spend a long, long long, some would say too long, amount of time showing us Bond training to be a ninja. So unlike <laughs> virtually all of his other skills, this is one that he actually does his homework. They and, explain uh, it, huh? Okay. Probably more homework than we need. Right. Next from Laura. 
She says next in the formula is the title sequence. Maurice Binder designed the iconic opening in the original films, and each one built on the previous in terms of complexity. Then there is the song to accompany the titles. The Sam Smith song, The Writings on the Wall from Spectre, ranks among the poorest of the songs, and that does seem to be the conventional wisdom on this. Skyfall was one of the best, and so was the title sequence, according to Laura. The best song, though, was Goldfinger, belted out by Shirley Bassey. So number two, title sequence and song. You heard Laura's pick of Goldfinger. Are you going to disagree with her? You know, nothing is more boring than consensus or uh, repetition, but uh, if this is merely the, the question of which is the best song, then You Only Live Twice, sung by Nancy Sinatra, uh, John Barry, the frequent Bond composer, composed the song, the lyrics are by Leslie Bercuse. That's the best one. Um, if we're going for the combination of music and imagery, then I'll probably give it up to Goldfinger, just because the opening chords of that song are so powerful and the, the you know, the sort of flash forward to scenes from the film the way that later on the Mission Impossible films would do during the title sequence, but projected against the gold-painted bodies of these women. Talk about objectification. It really could not be visualized any more literally than the way it is in the opening titles of Goldfinger. But with the, yeah, a pure song, You Only Live Twice, title sequence, I'm going with Goldfinger. I'm, I'm with you there and with Laura as well. I think the interesting thing about those gold-painted women, though, with that projection of the images on it, it almost makes it not so much the usual peep show, but something more of an expressionistic exercise. I, I really liked how this came together. And that song... It's weird looking at it now or listening to it now. It certainly fit the era so well, but it has that bombast that you can use it just as well today as some sort of ironic spoof of the franchise's brassy sensibility. Hmm. It, it's timeless in that sense. Yeah, and I, like Sharon Jones just covered that song a couple years ago. Like that's that's a song yes. that's really had a life beyond the the era of the film. Golden words he'll pour in your ear, but his lies can't disguise what you fear. For a golden girl, know when he kissed her, it's the kiss of death from Mr. Goldfinger. I didn't really dive into the title sequences. Goldfinger, though, would be my favorite. I'll join the consensus. In terms of just song, this one was kind of an easy one to think about because you read the line, you see the title in front of you, and which of these Bond themes can you instantly start to sing or at least start to hum? And so, of course, you go to something like Live and Let Die, Paul McCartney and Wings, Skyfall by Adele. We mentioned Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever by Shirley Bassey. Nobody Does It Better from The Spy Who Loved Me by Carly Simon, which the one thing there is I think of that more as just a Carly Simon song than a Bond theme. Of course, being a child more of the 80s than anything of You Do a Kill from Duran Duran instantly does come to mind. But just to break up the consensus a little bit and just to really be mocked, to open myself up to being mocked, my favorite Bond theme is actually For Your Eyes Only, Sheena Easton. That's it. Yeah, on EW.com. That's a classic film spotting contrarian pick. There you go. It's (laughs) me instead of Josh. But EntertainmentWeekly.com recently ranked, or maybe a few years back, but they ranked all 
24 opening sequences and songs, and they had For Your Eyes Only at 19th. <laughs> 19th. I'm going against that. I'm I, saying it's the I best. I think that's being a little generous. Wow. You, you enjoy that Sheena Easton. I do. <laughs> I do, and I will. Okay, speaking of Sheena Easton, we go back to Laura, who says, The women of the Bond films are another important part. Names like Pussy Galore and Honey Rider are right from Fleming's books. The two women, Lucia and Madeline Swan and Spectre, are throwaway characters, nowhere near the significance of Vesper Lind in Casino Royale or Honey and Dr. No. But the best Bond girl was Tracy, played by Diana Rigg in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Of course, I know enough about Bond history to know that Diana Riggs' character also has a special place in Bond history among Bond girls. She can say something that no other Bond girl can. So, Chris, where are you going? Um, I guess I, well, she's picked the, the two best ones. These are the two women for whom Bond genuinely falls in love uh, just prior to them being murdered. Of course, there's, there's Tracy, who's the, the woman he actually marries, only to, to see her gunned down by Blofeld and his henchwoman Irma Bunt like minutes after they, they take their vows in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I think my all-time favorite is, is Vesper. Um, Eva Green's performance in, in Casino Royale is, was really unexpected in 2006. Those are some of my favorite romantic comedy scenes of the 21st century, the three or four scenes of just uh, Bond and, and Vesper kind of bantering. They meet on this train. She introduces herself to him with the line, I'm the money, and he says, every penny of it. But it's clear that this is, this is a match of, of equals, and um, that, that makes it really, really sexy, really, really updated. Now, I haven't just met you. I wouldn't go as far as calling you a cold-hearted bastard. No, of course not. But it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine. You think of women as disposable pleasures rather than meaningful pursuits. So as charming as you are, Mr. Bond, I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed heart. You noticed. Even accountants have imagination. Yeah, I can't disagree with, with Laura there. I think Vesper Vesper just narrowly edges out Tracy. Can I cheat and say Judy Dench? I mean I I'd <laughs> go for I it. Really I, wanted like, to, I wanted to pick Judy Dench too. Yeah, I mean her her M was this retort. I mean, for how many? Six films, I think, right? Uh, it uh, was seven. Just, she, seven. She was in as many Bond films as Roger Moore, if you can wow. do that. Yeah, and I think it made an impact. It was sort of this retort to the disposable beauties we've talked about, um, which I think is a genuine problem with this series. It, Bond, I mean, th- he's got more women in his basement, dead women in his basement, than a serial killer, and he probably has less remorse about it. <laughs> yeah. You get the sense. Um, so anyway, I mean, I think one of the best things about Skyfall was uh, the fact that it became M's story, became the Dench character yeah. story. I did like that about it. Well, so right, and that's, that's the major relationship in that movie is the yes. relationship between sure. Bond and M is contrasted mm. with the relationship between her and uh, I don't remember the name of Javier Bardem's uh, disgruntled former MI6 agent. But yeah, the, the, you know, Judy Dench was the only piece of casting that they held over from the Pierce Brosnan era with they, when they rebooted with Casino Royale. And obviously you don't fire Judy Dench. But the relationship that she and Daniel Craig evolved over those three movies is so much richer and more complicated than, you know, just the sort of straight up antagonism that she had with with Brosnan. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Agreed. For me, some of the names that stood out going back through the list, that long list, but undistinguished in some cases, it seems, Josh, Honey Rider, the original Ursula Andress, Dr. No. I don't know why I'm saying this, but Solitaire, Jane Seymour and Live and Let Die. Famke Johnson. I I, I think I might know why. Okay, well, maybe. <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment. Famke Jansen from GoldenEye, Xenia Anatop, one of the best Bond girl names. Just speaking as a red-blooded... Now, now remind me how she crushes her victims, Adam. That's it. My that memory's scene, a little hazy yeah, how Anatop 
It's with uh, her. Like in what position she is right. when she exactly. you know, commits her assassination. I didn't want to go there. This is a family show. But okay. yes, memorable <laughs> love scene with Pierce Brosnan. Being a red-blooded, straight American male, just in terms of pure attractiveness, I was stunned by Rosamund Pike as Miranda Frost in Die Another Day. But I'm with you. Chris in picking Vesper Lynn, Eva Green. That that relationship is is just richer than any of the other Bond girls I've mentioned, certainly, except for maybe Judy Dench's M, and I love Casino Royale. So that's my pick as well. That brings us to our fourth trope. Laura says, chase sequences are usually a part of the film, too. The Rome sequence inspector had similarities to Quantum of Solace, but was quite exciting. So number four, chase sequence. What do you have? I'm going with the, the parkour chase at the beginning of Casino Royale, where we have Daniel Craig pursuing Sebastian Faucon, the, the French athlete who actually choreographed this, this whole scene. He plays a, a bomber in the movie who he is trying to capture alive and interrogate, but he pursued. There's this whole, there's really two acts of this chase. There's this um, sort of climb through this construction site that really cleverly contrasts the way these two men move. I mean, this, this is the most athletic thing that we have ever seen in a Bond film up to this point, but you have Focon just moving with this incredible grace and athleticism, you know, somersaulting and doing all these gymnastic moves, whereas Craig is just smashing through drywall like a bulldozer. Mm-hmm. And then, the, like, like all great action scenes, this takes a brief rest and then resumes when Focon's bomber character takes shelter in an embassy, and uh, the newly minted double-O Daniel Craig just storms right in and tears up the embassy. And when he becomes clear he cannot escape with his hostage, he shoots him in the head. So this is something new for Bond. You know, we don't know exactly whether we're supposed to be cheering for this guy who just committed cold-blooded murder in front of our eyes. We don't know who he was chasing just yet, how bad a guy this is. But it is a spectacular action scene that really, really gets the movie off to a, a flying start. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a great one. I'm going to go back to my childhood, though, for my pick. And uh, I just love that boat chase through the Louisiana swamps in Live and Let Die. This is a Roger Moore <laughs> Might be the only redeeming thing. That well, and Jane Seymour. You know what? I, I especially like the lo-fi stunt that precedes it. This is where he's escaping from an alligator pen and he has to hop on the heads of about six gators or so to get out. The theme song great bit where the theme song kicks in just as he lands on shore. I I remember spending a lot of time recreating that stunt in my neighbor's pool. (laughs) With with all the alligators. Yeah. What were you using for alligators? Come on, rats. Of course. (laughs) The unlucky kids had to be the alligators. There you go. (laughs) That brings us to our fifth and final category. Our master here, Laura, writes, the most important thing about a James Bond film is the villain. You have to have a good bad guy. Christoph Waltz was very good, contrary to what you think, Josh. Slimy when he needed to be and has a good backstory. The best villain, though, was probably Largo in Never Say Never Again, played by Klaus Maria Brandauer. Chris, who is your favorite Bond God, this is the hardest one for me because there are are so many great ones. I love Yafet Kodo in uh, Live and Let Die. Uh, Of the various Blofelds of the old days, I think Donald Pleasance is my favorite because they could never have the same actor play him in in two movies. But in classic film spotting fashion, I'm going to cheat. Love and it. I'm going to be a contrarian. I'm going to pick one from perhaps the very best single Bond film and one from uh, a popular choice of the worst. Robert Shaw in From Russia With Love, the second Bond picture, plays Red Grant. He is the heavy working for Spectre who is uh, impersonating an MI6 agent uh, who meets Bond on the Orient Express. And they have this, this classic, you know, for the time, spectacularly violent fist fight. But uh, he's physically imposing. He's a bigger guy than Connery is, but he's also sort of more 
more English. You know, he speaks with a more refined accent. And then uh, there's a great, I, I think it might actually, like the scene in um, Inglorious Bastards where Fassbender gives himself away by raising, you know, three fingers instead of two or whatever it is, might might be a sort of uh, homage to the scene in From Russia with Love where, where Red Grant orders the wrong the wrong type of wine with the fish on the train or something, and that's how Bond knows he's not <laughs> who he claims to be. How much are they paying you? What's it to you? We'll double it. Your word of honor? As an English gentleman? The first one won't kill you. Not the second. Not even the third. Not till you crawl over here and you kiss my foot. Yeah, Red Grant. And um, my more controversial pick from one of the least popular Bond films, Die Another Day, Toby Stevens as Gustav Graves, who played this, this villain is sort of like a modeled on a Richard Bramson type sort of a celebrity who, who likes to do participate in these public stunts. And uh, this, this guy is actually uh, a North Korean military official who Bond had pursued earlier in the film. He is undergoing gene therapy to look like a white Englishman. We'll let that go. Um, but I love because <laughs> he Stephen is a white Englishman. Yeah, because he he really is like sort of the mirror image of Bond, and he actually says near the end of the film that he sort of modeled his his phony identity on Bond. He has this arrogance, he has this swagger, and uh, Stevens just turns it up from what Brosnan is doing, like five or ten percent. In some of the BBC Four radio adaptations that I like of the the original Ian Fleming novels, they actually have Stevens playing the part of Bond. So he's a very good good pick for that. So uh, again, I'm splitting my vote between Red Grant in From Russia with Love and uh, Gust of Graves and Die Another Day. I'm going to go with one of the Blofelds, Donald Pleasance's version in You Only Live Twice. I, you know, he's he does have the cat and Eric Woolley, a listener on Twitter, when we were asking for their favorite. Bond trope said, Blowfield's cat, it's become a cliche thanks to Bond. Want to make someone look evil? Give him a cat or a pet to stroke. The villain in Inspector Gadget cartoons had a cat. James Bond, allow me to introduce myself. I am Ernst Stavro Blofeld. They told me you were assassinated in Hong Kong. Yes, this is my second life. You only live twice, Mr. Bond. Target vehicle passing over central Russia. Uh, For me, though, it's also largely because of Blofeld's lair and his office in particular in in this film. He's got a pool for Piranha, like an actual pool, not just a tank. And I love that he also has Hans on hand to just drop like a mutton chop in it for a demonstration whenever he wants to do that. So I think it was Ken Adams as the production designer on You Only Live Twice. And that has the elaborate volcano lair as well, which which is not a two inspector. Yeah, exactly. And actually, Laura did add that that's another trope. The villain's lair is another thing. Not every film has one, though. The one inspector harkens back to that volcano crater in You Only Live Twice. I was surprised looking over the list of all these villains, just how few really stood out to me in my memory. And the name you were looking for, Chris, was Raul Silva, Javier Bardem in Skyfall. Uh, I did love that performance, and I really like that film. I would go with a pretty cliche choice here, but you have both Auric Goldfinger and Oddjob. 
And I do remember feeling so smugly proud of myself when I saw Austin Powers for the first time in the theater. And I was the only person who laughed when they referred to the henchman as random task. (laughs) Because I, of course, got the odd job random task and nobody else knew what was going on. So that is maybe the only reason why I'm going with odd job. If you go with henchman, another Bond trope, someone like Jaws, of course, really does stand out memorably. But those are my two favorite Bond villains. And we might as well give Laura the last word here. She says that you might pick a favorite Bond film, but there is a lot in that. You have to choose a favorite Bond. Most people would pick the most recent, Daniel Craig, because he's freshest in their minds. I love Craig, and his four-picture arc is terrific. I really like all of the Craig Bonds, Skyfall, Casino Royale, Spectre, and Quantum of Solace in that order, but it's a really high bar. The key to the Bond films, though, is fun. I just have a really good time when I go see a Bond film. We say thank you to Laura Ellis. I I think she at least earned a film spotting t-shirt. Absolutely. And much more for really forming the entire structure of our top five. What about you on that final note, Chris? Favorite Bond film. And do you have a definitive favorite Bond? Is it just hands down? Because for me, and this is really baseless because I haven't seen Dalton or Lazenby, but I just don't see how anybody competes with Daniel Craig. I don't care about how cool the original is in Sean Connery. It's all Craig for me, but what do you say? You know, as someone who has seen all of these films, and uh, most of them multiple times, Daniel Craig is my favorite, too. I think he, he has commanded the role like nobody since Connery. He's brought this, you know, more psychological, complicated dimension to it. I love him. I think my all-time favorite is still from Russia with Love, although the 2006 Casino Royale is a very close second. The Bond film for which I most want to be an apostle, though, is I want to tell everybody who hasn't seen it to go see On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, I really want to see it. Such an odd movie, but it's beautifully photographed. The locations are beautiful. We have a, you know, the one-timer Bond, Lazenby, who is not a great actor, but he's much more physical even than than Connery was. Um, This was an Australian model with no acting experience when he was cast, and that's a crazy story in itself. The structure of this movie, because it follows the Fleming novel so closely, is really bizarre, um, but that keeps it from being predictable. So for many reasons, I, I don't know. It, it's just so so strange and so rewatchable. features one of John Barry's greatest scores. The cinematography is just great. And most people have never never seen it. Mm. So uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, please check it out. Great stuff. Those are our top five Bond tropes. You can email your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. On Twitter, you can find us at Filmspotting and at Larson on Film. You can also find Filmspotting at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Thanks so much, Chris. This was a ton of fun. Where can people find you if they want to read some of your stuff? I know you have the Spectre piece at The Atlantic, but if they just want to catch up with some of the other things you're doing, where should they look? Uh, yes, I, I link to all that stuff from my Squarespace website at chrisklemek.net. That's K-L-I-M-E-K. I'm on Twitter at C-T-K-L-I-M-E-K. This was super fun, guys. Thank you so much. It was indeed. Thank you for bailing us out. Let's do it again soon. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And while you're there, take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll. We've got a barn burner here. It's a three-way battle for first place, Josh. Who would you cast in the completely non-existent Bond sequel slash spinoff, The Son or Daughter of Bond? Have you weighed in yet? I have weighed in, and I think it's interesting to note that of the six options, three men, three women, I believe the three women are at the top of the poll. Really? So yeah. people are really looking for They're really for that going to for Daughter of Bond. They're trying nice. to mix things up a little bit, which I can appreciate. Out 
on VOD of interest to us this week, Entertainment. This is the latest from Rick Alverson, who made the movie The Comedy. I actually had the star of that film, Tim Heidecker of Tim and Eric fame, on Film Spotting to talk about his role in the comedy. This movie is about a comedian who plays clubs across the southwestern United States. And our friend, film critic David Ehrlich, says Entertainment confirms that Rick Alverson is one of the most vital and necessary filmmakers in American indie cinema. So strong words, but after the comedy, I am very much encouraged to see entertainment. Out in limited release, opening in Chicago this weekend, Brooklyn, a period drama about an Irish immigrant. It's based on the best-selling book by Colm Toybean. It stars one of our Bond daughter contenders, Saoirse Ronan, and also Donald Gleeson. It has an 88 on Metacritic. People are loving Brooklyn, and now I very much want to see it. Heart of a Dog, the new film from artist-musician Laurie Anderson, the essay film Meditating on Life, Death, and Her Dog is also out, recommended by me strongly. And Spotlight from director Tom McCarthy, who gave us The Station Agent and The Visitor. It's about the Boston Globe's early 2000s investigation into the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal. And that one got four stars, I saw, from Michael Phillips Hmm. in the Chicago Tribune. Yeah, a lot of love for it as well. Our friends, formerly of The Dissolve, now at the Next Picture Show podcast, called it one of the best films of the year. I know at least Keith Phipps feels that strongly about it. Also out that I'm curious about, Trumbo with Brian Cranston as the blacklisted screenwriter Dalton Trumbo. Out in wide release, you've got The 33, the true story of the Chilean mine collapse that left 33 miners trapped underground for 69 days, and Love the Coopers, an all-star cast holiday comedy with Diane Keaton, John Goodman, Marissa Tomei, and Amanda Seyfried. We will not be talking about either of those films next week. We are actually planning to discuss the fourth installment in the Hunger Games franchise, Mockingjay Part 2, the top five, still to be determined. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Stanley Kubrick's 2001, the greatest science fiction movie of all time. It's in the Pantheon. We can no longer include it in any other top five lists. He'll play something there. Um, See, now I'm really confused because I'm hearing... Have we used... 2001 music I don't for another have, film. Sam has the... to. Maybe, maybe we have. Or is it in the? Have we put it in the pantheon and forgot to put it on the website? <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like we put it in. I, I hear, I hear you introducing a film, and I hear that music. I know, but but Sam might have he used, used it. it for, I think he yeah. just used it. Okay. Um, okay. So here we go.